All right, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. And let me say on the front end, especially if you're visiting with us, like we had somebody at the first service, first time here. Uh, I don't know if they'd been to church in a while, but Roman Catholic background, and a real sweet lady came in, invited by one of our members, and the first thing she saw when she got the program, she was like, Revelation. Oh my gosh, what am I doing here? This is the worst. Um, so let me just say, like, listen, I feel you. Revelation is hard, and I've been preaching for a couple of decades now. It, this is the hardest thing I've ever preached, to preach through, like, to teach through Revelation is easy, to preach through it I find to be very difficult, which means it's probably a lot harder for you to have to sit through it. So um, we're going to be looking at chapter 13 today, and we're going to look at the whole thing. It's a big passage that has a lot in it, and there's a lot of confusion that surrounds it. So why don't we pray before we get into it, pray that God would give us insight, wisdom, understanding, and a heart to believe what God says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. And we trust, Lord, that you forgive us for our neglect of that book because of our own ignorance or fear or misunderstandings. We ask, God, that you would teach us today that though we can't have all of the answers, we won't figure everything out, Lord, but at least will you give us understanding, an understanding of, of the truth of your word in this chapter that is relevant for how we live and worship today. In Christ's name, amen. So I was talking to Pastor Jimmy this weekend, and uh, he found out that I have not seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. And uh, he's like, how have you not seen The Wizard of Oz? And I'm like, because why would I ever want to watch a movie like The Wizard of Oz? It's not my kind of a movie. He's like, yeah, but as a kid, you watched The Wizard of Oz. And I'm like, nah, that's not. As a little kid, I watched Night of the Living Dead. That's the kind of thing that I watched. Night of the Living Dead, and then I watched uh, like Dawn of the Dead, and then Return of the Living Dead, and then Day of the Dead. You get the idea. Right? Lots of zombie things that I watched, you know. But I like those movies. I like those zombie movies. I like that old Vincent Price movie, The Last Man on Earth, which was remade into the Will Smith, I Am Legend, whatever, but Vincent Price, Last Man on Earth. Same kind of idea, right? Zombie, vampire type people, one guy. I like these movies of, of, of zombies because the stakes were so high. It wasn't one guy in a mask terrorizing one neighborhood. It was the world enveloped in a shadow of danger and darkness. And people were scared and they didn't know if they were going to survive. The stakes were higher. And I still like it because it corresponds to a spiritual truth. It corresponds to this reality that we do live in a world filled with monsters. And we live in their shadow. And it is dangerous. We're going to see this in Revelation 13. Here is the main point that I want you to grasp. If you're going to, I say, if we can hang on to one truth in this chapter, it is this, that Christians are called to live victoriously in the shadows of monsters. This is where you are sent by God to live, not in the sunny pastures of, of peaceful bliss, but in a very real sense, we live in the shadows of monsters and we are called to live victoriously therein. And we're gonna read this in two stages because it's a lot. Um, and before we get right into Revelation 13, let me just give a brief recap, going back to verse, or chapter 12, because in 12, what we have is this vision of a dragon and a woman. And the dragon, we learned, represents the devil and the devil's pursuit of the woman, which we understand represents the people of God and the church. 
And he's pursuing the woman because the woman is going to produce an offspring. The woman is going to produce a Messiah, a savior. And the devil, that dragon, wants to devour that child because that child brings with him salvation, deliverance, but also damnation for the devil. He cannot destroy the child when the child is born. The child accomplishes his mission, ascends into heaven, and so now the the dragon is left with the woman, so he pursues her, and the woman flees into the desert where she is tested but also protected. She's nourished by God. All the while, the devil seeks her ruin. That's where we left off. Now we're picking up in chapter 13, and we read about two beasts, two monsters. And the first beast is one that rises out of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority on one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written in before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The first beast gives us a description of a monster that is terrifying. He is scary. It, visually, it's hard to actually put all the pieces together so you can imagine what it had to look like in order for it to come out like this. This is an intense and dramatic picture. In the first two verses, we see that this is a creature, a beast that arises up out of the sea. Remember, we left off when the devil is on the, the shore and the sea. He's there. There's the dragon. And now one of his creatures comes out of the sea. Super dramatic, right? Rises up out of the sea. Now, We know that we're not interpreting all of this literally because, and I know that some of our brothers and sisters really want to interpret as much of this as they can literally, but as an apocalyptic prophetic genre of literature, it's not intended to be taken so literally. And so we we should not expect a giant Mothra-like monster to emerge up out of the ocean. Shouldn't be no Godzilla coming up out of the ocean in the end times, though that would be sweet. It's not probably what's going to happen. It's not the picture, all right? What we do have is this creature coming up out of the sea. Now, the creature itself is metaphorical, but so is the sea. The sea should be understood to be not the oceans, but the people of the world. The sea, now before you tune out, the sea represents the peoples, the tribes, the tongues of all nations. This beast is rising up from the people of the earth. Why do we take that? Because as this 
vision continues and this beast and these, these waters continue to be mentioned in Revelation chapter 17, verse 15. We read this, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw, and this is the vision with the great prostitute and the beast. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and people, they are the peoples, right? These, these waters are the multitudes, the nations, and the languages. It is the mass of people and culture from which this beast, whatever this beast is, rises up. Now, his appearance is amazing, right? It's amazing because he's got 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 diadems, right? So he's, it's a creature with seven heads, but he's got 10 horns, and each of the horns has a crown on it, and on each of his heads are these blasphemous names and sayings. And as we read on, this, this, this beast is like an amalgamation of different creatures, right? A, a leopard, a bear, and a lion, it's like, whoa, I, I mean, I don't think it would even look good in a painting. Like, I don't know how to put all that together. But that's the picture. Like, this crazy beast is described like this. Now, how do we understand it? To begin to make sense of it, I think it's helpful to go back to Daniel 7. You see, Daniel is also this prophetic book that prophesied not just about the present, but about the future. And in Daniel 7, we read about four beasts, including a leopard and a bear and a lion. And we see that, that each of these beasts represent kingdoms that will come and come under judgment. But here, we don't have different animals. We have one animal made up of these different beasts. So it's, it's not like, oh, well, this is one specific kingdom. This is all of the kingdoms of the world. All of the kingdoms of the world that are at odds with Christ, at war with the gospel, that seek to persecute and stamp out the church. It's one beast representing all kingdoms. He has these Heads, right? Seven heads. Again, seven, always a number that represents completeness and perfection. Keep, it, keep that in mind until we get to the end. Seven in Revelation always represents completeness and perfection. And so here, we see this is a beast with seven heads. All of the kingdoms, it's, it's the complete picture of the kingdoms of the world, the various states and governments. It is, it is the nations and their opposition to Jesus and the truth of the gospel. This beast has seven heads, but it has ten horns, so it's very powerful. These are powerful kingdoms that have crowns, right? So there's authority and there is a reign. These are anti-Christian worldly kingdoms that are being represented. You see, this beast is in league with the dragon. They are united. They are together. The dragon gives this beast authority and power and a throne to, to sit on, opportunity to reign. In other words, the devil uses the kingdoms of the world in a variety of ways to fight against the truth of the gospel, the hope of salvation in Christ and the way of God. Some are more hostile than others. But this is what we're seeing, anti-Christian worldly kingdoms, a beast with seven heads. And one of these heads is mortally wounded. One of these heads says it was mortally wounded, but it's been healed. In other words, it looks like 
there was a death knell. It looks like there was some kind of utter defeat for one of these heads. And, but now there has been a, a resurrection of sorts. Now, this is where there are some different opinions as to how we should interpret this particular dragon. So as we're already seeing, we're going in a particular direction. We're going to be coming back to this as we make our way through Revelation. But for now, let's just note, I do not think that this is a picture of the Antichrist who suffers a wound and is raised from the dead in the future. I don't think that personally makes sense in the context of the vision that we're seeing. I do think it makes a whole lot of sense if we understand, oh, this is a partner of the devil and his work, uh, an emissary, right? It's a, it's a part of his collective efforts to devour the church and dishonor God. And what happened to the devil? We can go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3.15 and we read that, oh, there will be hostility and enmity between the devil and the woman, between her offspring and him. And in fact, the promise is, listen, uh, you will strike at her offspring's heel. That's Christ, right? You will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head, head wound, mortal. And so this makes me think of, oh, the, it's, it's the casting down and the, and the casting out of Satan that we read about in the last couple of weeks, that when Jesus was here, he was binding the devil. He was, he was overturning his rule. He was restricting him, punking him, beating him. He was falling like lightning. But despite all of that, he is still active. He still moves. He still hurts. He is granted permission to continue to attempt to deceive the world. So though he was conquered though he is defeated he is allowed to continue this is the beast the world's nations and kingdoms that align themselves against the church and they love the dragon and they the people love the beast you see it in verse 4 i mean they're 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 wowed here and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast who can fight against it they love not everyone of course but many of the people learn to love they fall in love with their with their nation with their world with their culture they begin to find their identity in it it defines who they are and what they are about more than the more than more than god does so some people begin to worship freely the culture and the kingdom of the world that is actually hostile to the church. And it will see if they don't, then they will be compelled to worship or to bend the knee. So we see, we begin to understand, okay, this, this monster out of the sea, rising up out of the people and the nations and the culture and the languages is in league with the devil to lead people to worship it above all. And this monster, this, this beast, has a reign. We see it in verses 5 through 10. He rules over the world and blasphemes. He's uttering blasphemies. And he exercises authority for 42 months. All right, let's talk about 42 months. 
42 months is important because 42 months is three and a half years, and three and a half years is 1,260 days. I don't know that because I know math or I'm smart. I had to memorize that stuff out of the commentaries. The point is, is like this, this period of time has been repeated again and again throughout this book. In fact, the 1,260 days, the three and a half years, the, the 42 months, that period of time is what is used uh, in Revelation 12, for example, uh, verses uh, 6 and 14. It's the period of time that, that is used to, to mark the church age from Christ's first coming and his ascension all the way to his second coming. It, it's, it's, a, it's the period of time where the church is persecuted while proclaiming. It's the period of time that we have to make disciples of people in all nations while the devil hunts us. That's the amount of time. Now, it's not, obviously, it's not a literal three and a half years. It's a metaphor. It's a period of time. It's symbolic, I should say. It's symbolic for the amount of time that we have. Our time is short, and it will come to an end, and this is how long the beast reigns. And during this time, he is persecuting. You see in verse 7, he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is, everyone whose name is not written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. There is this book, this book of life. We read about it in Revelation. In fact, you see it early on in Revelation. In, in Revelation 3, we read about this book of life, and if your name is in this book, it cannot be blotted out. Listen to three five. The one who conquers, I will be the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. See, if your name is in the book, it means that you are one of God's, one of God's people. Jesus talks about during his ministry, these are the people that the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world. Theologians like to refer to these people as the elect, the elect of God. We're talking about those people that are in the divine register. If your name is in the book, you are going to be saved. Your name cannot be taken out of that book. You are secure. Everyone whose name is not in that book, those are the people, we are told, who wind up worshiping the beast, who wind up worshiping the devil. No, not the devil as the red demon-faced uh, persona, but the devil as he takes control through his beasts of the world at large, through culture and government. And then there's this promise in the midst of this bad news. There's a beast rising up out of the sea. He is persecuting. He is even killing. It looks like the beast is winning. It does not look like the church is winning. And then in verse 9, we read, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. In other words, when your time comes to face the hard reality of these monsters, then your time has come. There's no escaping it. So here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's the point. The end of verse 10 is the point. Here is the call for endurance and faith. This is what you're facing. This is your world. It is dark and filled with demons. You don't need to be scared, but you do need to know. 
You must endure. You must believe. You must rely on the one, the lamb who was slain. It's his book that your name is written in. And we believe in him. We rely on him. We have come to see this theme throughout the book of Revelation of the victory of Christ in his church over the devil and the world. And we're seeing it played out even here with the first beast leading to the second beast. The first beast came out of the sea. The second beast comes from the land. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. See, that makes the inhabitants of the earth. Worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword with, and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. There's a whole lot going on in this passage. We cannot get into all of the details, so I would just encourage you to study, pick up a good commentary, something by... Uh, an easier one to read would be uh, Hendrickson and, and Kistemacher, the New American Commentary Series on Revelation. Now, but we're going we're gonna to follow what's being said. We're going to get this picture. Also, it causes all, both small and great and rich and poor and free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Y'all been waiting to get to the mark of the beast, and it's finally here. All the conspiracy people are like, finally, mark of the beast. We're going to get into it. It's going to be exciting. Okay, so just hang on. We'll get there. Just let's, let's back up. So, this second beast appears out of the land, not out of the sea. And what this beast is, this beast, the emphasis is on how opposite this beast is from Christ and all things heavenly. And it's, it's pushing on this because it presents itself as if it is similar. Here's what I mean. Not only is it coming from the earth, right, opposite of heaven, but it appears as a lamb. It appears as a lamb. Now, this is, this is a, a strange thing, perhaps, for some of us, because most of us associate, oh, well, it's a, you know, a, it's a lamb. That's Jesus. Jesus is the lamb, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. But here he is, appearing like a lamb, and yet when he speaks, he sounds like the dragon. You see, he presents himself as an angel of light. He presents himself as something pure and positive and good and true, something in league with God, and yet we know that he is but a servant of Satan. And this, this beast has authority. I mean, look again at verse 12. It exercises authority of the first beast in its present and makes the earth and in its inhabitants worship the first beast. So you can see, People are worshiping the beast, the first beast. It's happening. They're worshiping the beast. They're worshiping the dragon. And here, this one also is not just encouraging people, but compelling people to worship. And the ways that this beast compels people to worship is through forceful coercion or inspirational signs and wonders. So it's carrot or stick, right? That's what it is, right? You're either going to worship the beast because look at this, how awesome this is. Signs and wonders. You like that stuff, so let's get going. Or if not, then you're going to get a whooping, essentially, right? So, so, so try and, and follow this passage where it 
It says, uh, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. It can cause fire to fall from heaven. Signs and wonders that make people perceive the miraculous and then give the beast credit, authority, reverence, obedience, submission. Now, sometimes the signs and the wonders, and there's different ways of looking at this, some people think, well, this is a reference to the false prophet in the future performing signs and wonders or the Antichrist performing signs and wonders in a dramatic way. Now, we're going to get into some of that as we continue on our way through Revelation, but for now, let's understand this. This beast, whatever this beast is, this beast has risen up, is presenting itself as something that is good sort of a reflection of Jesus, looks like Jesus, but doesn't really say the things that Jesus says. Perform signs and wonders like Jesus did, but they are either A, real, but have a satanic power behind them, B, they could be fake, just a total con job, right? But people perceive them to be real. I mean, the, the, these miracles, these signs and wonders... The point of them is to woo people into admiring and worshiping this creature that's in league with the devil. And if you do not respond to the signs and wonders, then there is the threat of death. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This beast is going to get the world to worship the dragon. He's going to get the world to worship the beast from the sea. He's going to get it done by sweetening the deal or making their life bitter. In fact, one of the ways in which we see this playing itself out is seen in the mark, the mark of the beast. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So I know that there are a lot of people that look at this and, and some, some popular writers and traditions that look at this and they go, okay, the mark of the beast. Whatever it is, it means you can't buy or sell. So it must be some kind of a thing that goes literally on the forehead or literally on the hand. And if you don't do this, then the government somehow restricts you. So it must be, it was, it was barcode. First it was going to be barcode. Barcode, then it was going to be uh, microchip implanted. Uh, it could be, you know, like, there's like a lot of things that people are like, well, it's going to be like this. This is how it's going to work. When apocalyptic literature isn't written to give you a very specific fulfillment of a metaphorical or symbolic prophecy. However, the point is still the same, largely, that those who have this mark are persecuted socially. I mean, those who refuse this mark are persecuted socially and economically. 
and begin to starve. So let's take a back, let's back up. If you're reading this and you see like, okay, whoa, there's a mark of the beast that goes on the hand or the forehead. How should I interpret this mark? If you've been reading Revelation, you should go back and be like, okay, well, I've already seen that there is a mark on the forehead. There is a mark on the people of God. There's God's mark and there's the mark of the beast. And when we go back and we look at this mark of God, the seal that God puts on his people, it's, it's a very parallel notion. And it isn't interpreted literally, is it? I mean, we go, we go back, right? We can, we, we can go back to 7, chapter 7, verse 3, just to put a finer point on it. Chapter 7, verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then also in verse uh, 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold, uh, we'll be getting to this next week or in a couple of weeks. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here's the point of a mark. The mark of the beast or the mark of God, the seal. The point is, you belong to whomever has put their seal on you. If you got the mark of God, you belong to God. You don't belong to yourself, you don't belong to the devil. If you got the mark of the beast, you don't belong to yourself, you belong to the beast. You are in alliance with them. You are submissive to them. You are with them in every way. So if you refuse to get the mark of the beast, if you refuse to go along and to pledge your loyalty, if you refuse to submit the knee, then you will suffer persecution. And the church did. In fact, early in Revelation, we see that people were starving to death literally in certain situations because of persecution. This is the second beast the monster. The first beast was worldly kingdoms. Perhaps the second beast is best understood as worldly philosophy and politics and ideology that drive and empower those kingdoms, that change people's minds and leads them into ways of thinking, being, and doing that are not just contrary to the kingdom but destructive to everyone around them. Now, the second beast... It is another tool that the devil uses. It's not just governmental, political power and might. It's cultural influence. It's changing people's minds. It's leading them away from the, from, from the truth. You see, it's used to control people. The devil uses this second beast to control people. We live in that shadow. I mean, can you, I mean, listen, I know we're super blessed. Fourth of July, y'all, like, bye, Britain. Like, we're gonna do our thing. Like, great. Like, so much that I, I love about American history and so much that I hate about American history. There is sin and corruption and evil. And while I wanna be very clear, that is satanic and corrupt. We gotta take ownership of it because we bought into it as a people. Horrible sins were committed in this country. And amazing, beautiful, great things have happened too. I'm grateful to be here. I love America, I can say that. I hate our corruptions and our flaws. But make no mistake, America is not the kingdom of God. America 
is not part of the kingdom of God. America is not aligned with the kingdom of God. We as Christians do not have a home on this planet. You get a relative home. You could say like, well, this is my home. I live here. This is my country. I was born here. I moved here. I emigrated here. Great. But your true home, your real home is the kingdom of God. We await for that kingdom to arrive in full. Our king is one. We don't have a political party. We don't have a candidate. And we might vote for somebody or align with somebody on a political level, but not there, we don't have that as the church. We don't have a country. We have a kingdom that is spiritual. So make no mistake about it, even when we live in arguably one of the most advanced and beautiful and successful countries in the world, there are monsters here. You could argue that the, many of the philosophical underpinnings in our country, as in every country, and governmental rules and regulations are the monsters themselves seeking to compel people to worship anything other than Christ. Christians are called to live here, called to live victoriously, without quitting, persevering in the shadows of these monsters. We don't get to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. We camp there. All this to say, you got to know where you live. You live in a world, here's how Luther said it, you live in a world with devils filled. It's a great hymn, right? A mighty fortress is our God. It's an amazing hymn. Listen to just a couple of lines from Luther's hymn. We sing it here a fair bit. First verse. This is how the first verse ends, which is always funny when sometimes Baptist churches will do like a hymn night, but they just sing the first verse. And then you move on to the next song. Here's the first verse. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Amen. Like, what are we talking about? Like, that's the end of the first verse. Ends on a downer, because it's a whole thing. It's an epic. It continues in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. But listen to part of verse 3. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, that's where we live. In a world filled with devils, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That is in this chapter. You just don't see it yet. It's in here. It's throughout the book of Revelation, but you haven't seen it in chapter 13 yet, have you? It's because we haven't looked at verse 18. Some of you guys have been waiting for this. 666, here it comes. The number of the beast. Going to finally have an answer to what Iron Maiden was singing about when they wrote that album in like 1986. Here you go. This calls for wisdom. So consider that. All that we've described, these two monsters coming out of sea and earth, persecuting, cursing, crushing the church, compelling worship. 
In light of all of this, this calls for wisdom. Okay. Let the one who has understanding, the wise, right? The believer, the Christian, the church. Let the one who has understanding, here he comes, calculate the number of the beast. What? For it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Uh, that's, that is like the least helpful thing that I would expect after this bummer of a chapter. Wow, the devil is going to ruin us. He's going to pursue us. We're going to camp out in the, in the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, this is hard stuff. And now you give me a number puzzle. Like, this is supposed to make me feel good. And people like to run with 666. And, they, and listen, I know it's, it's, it's tempting to play with this number quite a bit. But here's the problem. The more you play with it, the more creative you have to get to understand it. Now, a lot of people, a lot of scholars will work really hard at saying like, okay, we're just going to get into some numerology, some Bible code breaking, jujitsu things, and we're going to come up with an understanding of this number, 666. And it, frequently it comes down to like, okay, well, if we can assign numbers to different letters, we can pinpoint who it is. And they'll say things like, for example, it's Nero. It's the Roman Emperor Nero who was killing all the Christians. That's who it is. That's, that's what the reference is. But the problem is, is in, in order to even make that happen, it, we have to get pretty creative and arbitrary. We've got to kind of misspell the name, and then we've got to translate that, transliterate that into another language. I mean, it gets... Re- it, it, it doesn't mean that. Let's take a step back and get simple. Let's keep it simple. Like, this is apocalyptic literature. Numbers mean things but they mean simple, symbolic things. Seven means what? Complete and perfect over and over again. Six means incomplete, oftentimes associated with judgment. And what do we have here? Not sevens, but sixes. Incompleteness, not completeness. And not just incompleteness, but incompleteness, incompleteness, incompleteness. Failure, failure. Failure. It's perfect failure. The number of that beast, you ever hear that? I got your number. I got your number. We've got the devil's number, and it is utter failure. He cannot win. His doom is sure. Luther knows. This is the wisdom that we need when we're facing this kind of opponent that is stronger than us and, and scarier than us. We need to know that his that he is doomed to fail. And we have been decreed to be victorious. So let's end with this. In 1 John... Verse, chapter 4... We'll start in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
Yeah. We have been called by God and sent by God to live in the shadow of monsters, but to live victoriously. It doesn't always look like victory. Sometimes we starve to death. Sometimes we're persecuted for our faith. Some are thrown into jail. Some are murdered. But even then, we are granted persevering grace and endurance to testify of God and his faithfulness to the end. And in the end, we will be vindicated. God will be proven true and the devil a liar. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us what it means to live in a world that is beautiful in so many ways, but broken as well. That was created good, but is now marred by a satanic influence in every culture, in every country, in every age. Would help us to see and make a distinction between what is good and what is corrupt, but ultimately to hold fast to your son, our savior, and his kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.